decoded. Welcome to this episode of the Founder Tech Decoded podcast. I'm delighted on this episode to be talking to Jim Shirley, who's had a broad career um, across a number of uh, startups and portfolios and engagements with early stage founders, including exits with Six Degrees and Four Pure Brewery. Um, he's been involved in 20 acquisitions and integrations and worked across Venture Studio with about 30 startups. More recently, he's launched his own platform, Funding Hero, which looks to help founders um, find funding faster and, uh, and basically educate them around all aspects of that. And they're also uh, building on that, launching an accelerator, and he's got a book coming out around February, March. So, Jim, obviously you get no sleep because that sounds like an incredible amount of work on <laughs> multiple strands, but welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Dan. Um, so, do you want to, you can start wherever you want in that kind of founder's side. You start the, the, the latest bit or, or start at the beginning, however you want, but it'd be great to hear that story sort of fleshed out, obviously. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, so um, I've kind of been a, a CFO for over 20 years, um, always worked in very high growth companies. Uh, always very full on um, and they've always had uh, a real purpose um, always kind of really to grow really quickly um, and go towards an exit um, so I think two of those notable ones as you just said was like six degrees group um, that was a, a property backed business um, where they had initial 50 million pound investment they bought 13 companies in 18 months uh, all across managed services IT um, Bang them together, uh, grew that as one company uh, over five years, and then sold that uh, to a U.S. Uh, private equity house. Um, and then after that, uh, I went to work for um, a brewery uh, called Four Pure Bruco down in London, um, and that was with some second-time founders. Um, they knew how to scale a business. Um, they had the pure intention to to grow that, um, and over the course of the next three years, um, we scaled that rapidly um, to over 120 staff. Um, and we sold that to Lion Nathan of Australia, uh, who are a, a big three billion dollar multinational. Mm. Um, so it's been, you know, really good fun. Um, I don't enjoy uh, vanilla rolls, kind of. I like kind of high growth. That's what kind of gets me really excited. Um, and that's what's kind of led me to where I am now, really, um, trying to start to help founders uh, learn how to fundraise. Can I ask you a question? Just going on to the brewery, because obviously, when you know, brewery massively changed, I guess the term disruption is actually appropriate for what happened to that sector. Yeah. Um, and then you had sort of microbreweries kind of acting like startups. I, I would have thought they were one of the first instances where venture capital poured into sort of non-technical driven startups. What was it like working in a sector that was kind of growing and, you know, self, self-evidently, you know, clawing market share from traditional players in a, in a back sector, you know, that has venture money, but isn't necessarily technically driven or um, at, the, at the heart of it, as it were. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really strange sector because it's, um, you know, starts off as hobbyists, typically. You know, it's a really kind of passion-driven sector, lots of collaboration. Um, and it's not something that's necessarily you know, kind of known as being a, a, the fore of commercial, unless you get to the really big breweries. Um, and a lot of this, the scene was being set from the US. Um, the founders saw that the US market was years ahead, but that trend was coming to the UK. Um, so you know, they very much looked at the strategy to how can we you know, ride that wave? You know, and how can we kind of get to the peak of that market before it kind of starts to drop down? Um, 
so they had to do things differently um you know but they had a, they had a very clear vision as to where to grow the business um where to position it in the market um how to create a team around them that could support that growth um and, and just be really ruthless on how to execute that plan really they, they didn't compromise uh, on, on any areas you know we had to create a, a quality product we had to create the, the best uh, team we could um we had to be you know really strict with how we kind of created our processes and stuff and um and also just how we built the culture um you know to try and everyone's motto was proud to wear the t-shirt and i think that was one of the most important uh, measures we had as a business really um and that then kind of came through in the products that we produced and it came through in the performance of the business um and it was why we kind of managed to achieve what we did and and did did the those two companies um six degrees and and for pure did they take on outside investment um for pure was funded um internally at first um and then we went to raise external investment so we, we raised um some some bank loans and some asset finance to help scale that business um six degrees group was all private equity um so it started off with right. a private equity, uh, check at first of 50 million and then uh, they also introduced some debt along the way to help fund the acquisitions so when you let's, let's just extrapolate out of that and you look at other kind of sectors which traditionally wouldn't have been VC backed in a way maybe brewery and all the changes in it and brewing as a sector were kind of like a bellwether for venture looking at other other kind of sectors that might not traditionally have been in their purview. Do you think that that's the case? Am I am I reaching here? Yeah, I mean, I think I mean the brewing sector is always going to be a very bootstrap sector. Um, it's just kind of the nature of how it is. Um, it, it doesn't turn a huge profit. So companies have to bootstrap. But if there are the few that have got, you know, a, a magic brand that can really, uh, you know, fly with, um, then they will look for different types of funding. Um, and, you know, there was a period where crowdfunding was obviously the, the big go-to mm. thing for breweries. You know, every okay. other week there was a brand new brewery jumping on Crowdcube trying to raise, you know, crazy multiples because they saw that, Camden or Mean Town, you know, had exited to you know for very large amounts. Yeah. So, but that that sector caught up quickly, and obviously, you know, the, the crowdfunding kind of dropped off, dropped off on that. So. Yeah. So how? What was the step from there into the sort of the phase where you know you talk about twenty acquisitions, integrations, working across a venture studio? What's that stage look like? How did you migrate from the brewing sort of part of your life into into that aspect? Yeah, so the um, the kind of the order was like six degrees group came first, then I kind of progressed to four pure, and then um, when we exited four pure, um, I, I looked to kind of start to do a bit of angel investing, um, and I'd always had um, a bit of a, a tech itch to scratch, um, so I kind of I first found a, a venture studio in London uh, called Founder and Lightning, um, and I initially joined them to actually try and build uh, some tech myself. Um, it was an idea I kind of developed at four pure, and I, I did a bit of um product discovery for a few months um, and I very quickly realized the idea was absolutely rubbish uh, and I should can it straight away so uh, luckily I did um, but in, in doing that the, the opportunity actually arose to invest into them because they were raising their own uh, seed round at the time um, and also become a fractional CFO for them so I kind of I, I took both those roles on um, and then over the course of the next like four or five months it just developed into becoming a full-time role for them and the reason for that was because I had a, a desire to go to help build a funding function for them because the venture studio were experts at product validation first and then um, building the tech, you know, for MVPs to build them on a real lean methodology. Um, but all those founders need fundraising. And that initial phase from that kind of up to the first million pound over those first couple of rounds, well, startups trying to get their funding, um, you know, their, their platforms off the ground, try and find traction, um, 
understand their the commercial models. Um, finding funding was really hard. So we created a funding function to basically help you know, create a guided process for them, help to understand how to break their raise amount down to smaller amounts, um, how to avoid some of those really expensive uh, and, and permanent mistakes that can be made in those first few rounds, um, and just to try to create a really structured process. Um, and it was with that kind of the kind of the purpose to try and you know give founders that kind of um all that learning and knowledge that like an exit founder could have at the very start of their journey so they just kind of avoid a lot of those mistakes and they don't lose momentum which is a you know a really important thing yeah let, let, let's talk a bit about momentum what what do you think are having having been in high growth businesses what do you think are the things that kind of inform that growth can you have you seen consistent things across those businesses that when a business starts to get a startup starts to get that momentum and it kind of builds on itself and it builds on itself. Let's not say it gets exponential. We're just kind of, you know, success begets success. And also the inverse of that, when that kind of momentum seeps away, what, what are your um, insights into both aspects? I think, you know, they're, they're two sides of the same coin, I guess. Yeah, I, mean, I think the, the first thing is trying to trying to plan ahead as far as you can, because the, the most difficult thing is that um, a lot of startups can get reactive um, yeah. and you, they then try and find... Um, money to try and invest into more things to keep the momentum going but they're just too late they're like you know they're six months behind so the the people that execute it the best are always looking you know at least 18 to 24 months ahead and they're always thinking about not just the round they're raising the next round as well because as an early business you always need to spend more money there's always you know a thousand things you want to invest in so you have to try and plan ahead as best as you possibly can think about what those key milestones are and and be really strict and ruthless on how you kind of deploy that cash to get there um because it's very easy to get distracted um and it's very easy to chase you know spending money on the wrong things um so having a a real focus on what the kind of the core goal is and sticking to that core purpose is really important so let's just imagine i'm i'm one of your startups and i'm the founder of it and i'm coming to you as as my cfo Yep. And I say to you, Jim, I really want to spend this on R&D or I really want to spend this on marketing or this hire. How, what does that conversation when you're in that role um, for a startup with a founder, what does it look like when you're sort of trying to make sure they're evaluating that decision, which obviously has a financial corollary, so that, they, so that it drives momentum rather than distracts and builds for that long-term future? How, how, how do you think about that conversation? Yeah, I think it's about being strict on creating value. You know, I mean, at every point, you're trying to figure out if I spend X, what's the return? So, you know, if you're going to spend something on marketing, you know, do you have a very clear understanding of what's the uh, the, the CAC, uh, to, you know, the cost to acquire something? Sure. What's the, what's the benefit you're going to get back? Um, and likewise, you know, if you invest in a role, what will that role provide? Um, and, you know, software, more importantly, you know, what's, what's the benefit of that feature? It might be a nice to have, but does it actually create more value, more revenue? Does it move the needle to move you one further step down towards your milestones? Um, so you, you just have to be very, very ruthless and determine, you know, what's the return on investment for that? Because you, you can burn money so quickly as a startup um, on things that you don't need. There are things that you, you think you need and you want, but you don't really need them. Um, and the, the people that can you know segment those decisions down very quickly um and understand where they should focus the time and effort that's the really important point because it's not just cash it's also time um because time just gets sucked away so fast just the same as cash does yeah it came a, a phrase came up in the podcast the other day um 
uh, where too many startups are solutions in search of a problem. So, yes. which I, I quite liked. So it was like, you know, um, that you actually, it's deciding what you're going to focus on and iterating towards that in as a no code, low code way as possible yep. before you hone in on and then and then and then and only then are you driving towards product market fit. And so many founders, you know, they, they don't even know how far away they are from that moment or decisions that they need to take in order to get to that moment and, and be focused like that. And also that you don't need to spend that much money anymore to, 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 to experiment and iterate in that. In that in that phase is that is that your experience too now absolutely i mean i think low code and, and uh, no code has absolutely changed the game um it, it's you know and it's a recent thing you know in the last two or three years really it's become yeah. so much more accessible you know I've, I've seen millions and millions of pounds uh, that has been spent on people trying to build software where there wasn't really a need for it they you know kind of got wrapped up in their idea that it was it was the right thing to build um and they were just dead set on building it and, and proving it was going to work um, without any commercial rationale, without much product testing. Um, and the fact is, a lot of ideas you could test, you know, just by picking up the phone yeah. or by using a spreadsheet yeah. um, and just literally sitting in the room with a customer and drawing something out on a whiteboard and saying, you know, well, does that work? Does that work? And would you pay for it? Um and, and those are all they're the most common traps where people fall into it. And it's it's that reason why that kind of those first two years, you know, it, they are the startup graveyard um, because you can just spend, you know, you could burn 500 grand across the first two years trying to build something that no one really wants. Um, so with the adoption now of like low code and no code, people can spin stuff up over, you know, over a couple of nights or a weekend and they can get validation. Um, I, I was talking to a, a VC recently um, about how they've got a theory, how they want to start to kind of find founders that can, you know, for a couple of thousand pounds, spin up a landing page um, and just go and test their assumptions by generating a wait list and proving that the demand for the product is there before they've even built it. You know, and, and that's what people should be doing now uh, because there's kind of no excuse to go and spend thousands of pounds and, and find out the hard way. I think the critical bit is what you just said is that they, they needed a, a shift in the VC mindset, which is the product, the MVP, is not the trigger that we're going to use to evaluate the investment you actually can look at i was using this phrase over about a year ago it's kind of dropped off until until i just i literally just rethought it was like we were calling it minimum viable assumptions you kind of said that like mba and i think the reason lots of founders were building things one because that was just a legacy mindset of you used to need to build things bespoke but also because they they not not unfairly i think thought I'm not going to get any capital unless I'm showing that I'm building a product. If I just put up a landing page, who's going to back me? Whereas yeah. now there has been a sea change or, 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 or certainly a shift. Um, I guess the founder tech conversation wouldn't be possible without that shift of like, actually, it's almost like the more the more efficiently you use all the founder tech tools and the less money you spend and learn and the most and, and the most amount of learning you acquire with the less money that's starting to acquire a status that an investor at whatever level will start to go well that's a really smart founder and I think that is a shift that ha- it's not just the no code low code it's the corresponding kind of um, circumstance change of perspective and circumstances around that shift. Do, do, do you think? Do you agree with that? Because I, I think it's a really interesting thing. We can talk just about that because I think it's so interesting. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's the thing. I mean, when some of the low-code and no-code tools come along, they weren't really understood at first as to their, their full potential. You know, kind of creating a website on Webflow, that was a nice new novel idea and it, it you know, made a lot of sense. But when you can suddenly create apps that can actually generate revenue really quickly and you can integrate payment gateways to them, you know, it, they don't need to be seen as a negative. You know, you can generate millions of pounds on a low-code platform. Yeah. So why wouldn't you? You know, why would you go and invest several hundred thousands of pounds trying to build something that a low-code tool can do just the same? And I think the the really important thing now, though, is that like low-code and no-code, it's just it's the first stepping stone because it's the the cost to actually set up is so is so small. You can actually you know, generate significant revenue from them anyway. So you can actually self-fund yourself by going the low-code route. And, you know, for, for non-technical founders getting into, into software development, it's a whole different world. You know, like when you try to uh, create a product on uh, in, in software, every little button, feature, switch, they all take time to develop. They take time to switch and move. Um, it, it's not a fast process. Um, and that's when, you know, people can spend you know, historically, I've spent six months getting an MVP to market in full code, and they've lost six months. Well, that's kind of gone now. And and, and also from the you know from the actual resourcing side of it, previously you would have had to go and hire you know maybe a full stack dev or a front end or a back end. Um, as a non non tech founder, how would you have known to do that and to manage them? You know, and, and those individuals, the right individuals for that, you'd have had to probably use an agency, which would have cost you a lot of money. Yeah. Um, but now those barriers have come right down because you can do it yourself. People can, you know, learn at the weekend, you know, how to code and stuff, um, you know, and, and use these platforms. And I think it's completely changed the face of, um, you know, of, of getting a business off the ground. And I can see a, you know, a huge step change now with a lot of um, much younger entrepreneurs that they just they come out of you know university and they've already got you know businesses online that are generating revenue. Um, just because they can do it in their spare time and they've been yeah. brought up with that mindset. So I think it's a really exciting shift and change. I want to I want to get on to funny here in a second. You reminded me of one old story and one new story. It's, um, so the old story, which you kind of alluded to, again, I heard this I think, a couple of years ago, that a big um, um, beverage company or, or food, food and drink company wants to go into, a, I think it was a South American market, let's just say Mexico, and look at all the bodegas there that were say you know the, the corner the corner stores that were selling things it was really inefficient like their fridges were really inefficient and they weren't before the met you know the, the the metrics weren't good and, and they went they went in and they developed this whole app-based system that they put across all of the different stores to kind of organize your uh organize your your storefront your refrigerator and no one used it yeah. yeah. And then they went in with a whiteboard that they bought for like a dollar and they sort of drew the pattern of it and everyone used it and it, you know, changed. And it's like that, that uh, I always love that example. And then, and then the person actually, same person who was talking about the solution instead of um, such a problem was talking about she was on an MBA course and they were doing something in early learning and they basically, their whole uh, no code, low code product was run off WhatsApp, a mum's group um, and a parent's group. Um, uh, and they run it for six months on that until yeah. they actually understood the problem, the need, the solution. So I think it's I think it's so exciting. There's a few things that are really exciting. I think this shift is so exciting because it does free up and it elevates the really talented people by not bogging them down in the things that they shouldn't be sort of replicating or or sort of you know um, spending too much time on anymore. Because as as, as we've just said, you know you you can prove it much quicker. Let's move on to the the current current. Um, 
incarnation of uh, Funding Hero. Let's talk about you know why you launched it based, I guess, on all these these insights. I'm sure some of it feeds into what we've just been talking about. The accelerator model you're launching, the book you're launching. Let's 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 get into that piece of the story. Okay. Um, yeah. So in terms of um, how Funding Hero was born, so um, from kind of working with the portfolio uh, at Founder and Lightning, um, I, I could just really see all those pain points uh, that founders go through to to raise those first couple of rounds. Um, the the learning curve is so big. Uh, it's you know it's a complex process to get around from all the way through from start to finish. There are so many ways that you can um, you can fail, um, and the biggest part of it is just trying to juggle a fundraise while actually building a business. You know it, it's a it can be a full time job, um, and for a lot of founders who haven't necessarily got a, an investor network they can call on, you've got to try and create an investor network from scratch. You've got to try and figure out how to pitch, how to create a financial model. Um, how to find investors, how to approach them, how to go through due diligence. It's actually quite a minefield, and that's before like a lot of the uh, legal stuff as well. So the kind of the goal really was to try and create a process um, because a lot of my previous experience in kind of scaling companies was about how do we create a repeatable process that works, um, you know, in quite complex circumstances. And that's exactly what fundraising is basically. Um, so I tried to distill it down to uh, what I call six pillars. So the first pillar is how to create a raise strategy. So what are the components that go into that plan? So how do you create a raise budget? What's the timeline for your raise and the structure for it? And what's the overall strategy you want to try and achieve while you're going out to raise? Um, then we try and look at the second pillar, which is around the different funding types. Um, a lot of founders don't know um, all the different types of funding available to them. Um, so they kind of might just jump straight for equity or especially VC money because they think that's the sexy thing to go after when really there's much of the different instruments and uh, funding types available for them. Um, we then kind of take them through uh, investment materials, which is our third pillar. So we help to educate around you know, how to create a pitch deck, what different types of pitch decks there are and their purpose. Um, and also, you know, the real importance of financial model because that's the, the one common link you have um, to speak the same investor uh, language. Um, then you kind of think about you know, raise amount and valuation. Um, a lot of founders will kind of go out there and go, my idea is absolutely bomb proof. I want to go and raise two million pounds, raise once, and that will see me in good stead. But that's just not reality. You know, kind of how startups work. Um, you won't get money that easily. You've got to do a lot of things to, uh, to to prove first and to kind of earn the right to raise those larger amounts. Um, then we kind of go through to like our fifth pillar, which is around pitching. So that's kind of trying to educate around how to actually pitch, how you come across how you can represent yourself uh, and the business, because the most important thing is that investors invest in people um, and you have to kind of show that founder investor fit, which is really, really important. Um, and then the, the final uh, pillar is around due diligence. So even though you've done all that hard work, you've found the investors, you convince them, you've got to come into your business. If you can't get through due diligence, then you've lost all that hard work and the round's over. So you have to understand those kind of six different stages. So our purpose is to educate, is to kind of give everyone that knowledge up front so they can confidently step through each stage um, and, and just not fail, you know, like the huge amount of rounds that do. Can we talk about um, how the accelerator is going to work and incorporate those six pillows, ha pillars, excuse me, how does that, how does, uh, how does a fountain, you know, once everyone boarded onto the accelerator, what does that look like? 
Yeah, so the, the the benefit is, so our, our platform is an online fundraising accelerator. Um, so it's a SaaS uh, model where people can actually do it themselves. Um, but the accelerator we're launching is an in-person accelerator, uh, which is based in Birmingham. So rather than just the do-it-yourself option, they get the benefit of working with myself um, and several other experts where we kind of take them for a, a guided 12-week process. Um, and we can actually go really deep into each pillar. And the core objective for us is also to kind of help create the awareness of what their journey looks like. So not no two businesses journey is the same. You know, everyone has very different needs and wants from a business. Some people might be trying to scale and create the next unicorn. Some people might want, you know, a two to three million pound turnover business um, that kind of, you know, suits them for a lifestyle. And they're very, very different. So every different business has kind of have to have their own financial strategy, which then di- dictates the types of funding they will go after. So we will handhold them through that process to make sure they understand that it's something they're comfortable with. Um, we try to always ensure that they understand once you jump onto the funding flywheel, you can't get off. It's very, very difficult. Um, you can become addicted to it, unfortunately. Um, once you start taking investment, it's it's that easy kind of way to, to kind of take cheap credit. And you always think you can kind of pay for it later. Um, and that can catch up with you because in business, a few things are always sure that revenue takes a lot longer than you expect and costs always a lot more um, than what you forecast. Um, so we, we will just hold their hand for a 12 week journey um, and then we can make sure we can signpost them uh, to all the relevant places and, and funding sources quickly. So we can create really um, investable individuals that kind of don't just have that entrepreneurial flair to create a business. They also have that kind of financial acumen to understand what does that journey look like so when they actually talk to investors they can just see that they've kind of already thought about a lot of the things that that crop up uh, and can catch up along the, along the way yeah and how do people what was the commercial or the engagement parameters around being on that accelerator so at the moment it, it's a paid fee currently um so we currently charge five thousand pound for uh for 12 weeks um and, and for that they'll get um one day a week in person all day we have a mixture of um workshops and one-to-ones um we have a mixture of um different experts that will come uh, and work with us so we have like you know venture capital uh, some crowd experts some tax experts ip etc um and they get that really really in-depth understanding basically um and they can also they benefit from having that network of you know founders to go through having that that community, you know, and that kind of shoulder to uh, talk to other people makes a massive difference. Um, and we're trying to just make sure we can separate ourselves from the, the other accelerators because a normal accelerator obviously covers a, a lot broader spectrum of things that we cover. You know, we're not there to think about their uh, commercial business strategy, um, but we can be very, very focused purely on getting them funding fit. Yeah. Um, and do you do you use the term sort of um, investment funder fit, or do you have do you, you know in terms of the modelling of that, do you have a language around when that when that it starts to kind of increase that capacity increases? Uh, what it'd be interesting to hear the language that you use to kind of want, when a founder starts to move towards that. Yeah, I think I mean from our point of view, we can start to tell when they're an investor ready, um, when they can just they can start to talk the same language, when they understand all the key terms that an investor will speak. Um, they're able to be very clear and concise in the way they describe their business and pitch. Um, they're able to understand and articulate their whole journey. And they can also start to kind of just anticipate the risks and they can, and their confidence to say to investors, 
where they see the risks and how they can mitigate it. I think that's one of the, the big things for me is trying to, when I look at a founder, I always try and look at them and say, if a problem came their way, would they find three solutions to it? Would they always find a way to navigate around it? Um, no matter how tough things get, will they be able to kind of bring, you know, a team along with them um, and just manage to kind of get to that next stage? Because those are those really key things you look for in, in a founder. Um, there is, there's hundreds of founders with fantastic ideas, but building a business is extremely tough. I think it's, it, it's hard to explain how hard it is, um, you know, kind of mentally, physically, um, you, you bear an awful lot of burden on your shoulders. You have to make a thousand decisions every day. Um, and that's not for everyone. Uh, so those are some of the kind of the key things you look at for a founder, really being trying to assess their overall founder fit and also that, you know, their investor fit. Do you tackle things, I mean, you touched on it there, but that, that well-being and keeping yourself, you know, balanced, focused, re- recharged, do you touch on that in the program? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because I think it's, you have to be upfront uh, at the very outset because fundraisers, you know, typically will take six to 12 months. Um, it all depends on you know, how well established your network is, um, you know, or if you get lucky or things like that. But the reality is most fundraisers drag on and people will work significant hours while they're raising. Um, and, and that's really tough because they're going to be in the financial um, challenge. You know, it could be drawing money personally from the home, uh, which causes, you know, problems at home and stuff as well. Mm. Um, it, it's not easy. So you have to kind of go into that mindset of understanding exactly what's involved so you can pace yourself. It, it's very much like a marathon. Um, and to get ready for that marathon, you have to do the training in advance because if you don't do that, then you know, you're going to fall at the first hurdle. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's one of those things, isn't it? That, um, who said it? I think it was Sting. He said it was about his career, you know, in, in the police. He said, if I'd have known what I had to go through in order to get to where I currently am, I never would have started in the first place. Yeah. And, and it's the same thing with founders. It's like, you know, I think for most founders, they dramatically underestimate. It's, it's not, it's, it's a very hard feeling to express, isn't it? It's not, it's not just the, the workload, it's the, so much is to do with the uncertainty and the ability to stay, uh, I guess, a flo- not just a float, but buoyant. It's like, it's almost, it's almost like um, uh, a quality of buoyancy that really successful yep. founders have. Um, and, they, and they keep moving through and they're able to kind of focus on the long term, but also on the short term and not kind of get burnt out and manage multiple things. And it's, I mean, one of, one of the things I'd be interested in in your view on um, before we move to the switch deck, because there's so much that we've covered that is relevant, um, is I, I, again, you kind of touched on it about what's your goal, that, that we, we have this unicorn myth, you know, that, that is, is purveying in startup culture, and, and I don't think it's particularly healthy, and, and it's, it's so unrealistic for most people. Um, and you alluded to the idea that actually some people just want, you know, two to three million um, pound to, uh, business um, with you know annual turnover of that amount, which is a considerable business in itself, and that's okay. Other people want to kind of exit, you know, for a reasonable amount of money, but not 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 insane in terms of kind of like you know it's it's not it's not Wonderland. It's just a good a good amount of money that they can put away. What what do you? Uh, my personal view is is that we have to break in the same way as we broke with No Code Loco with this sort of myth that the founder that starts and launches something and navigates their way into a say complex problem space is not necessarily and very often not the person who's going to scale that 
a good example of that was Tom from Monzo, you know, did something incredibly difficult to launch a challenger bank that, that kind of went up against the big boys and then walked away because he said, I don't want to run a team of people. I don't want to be on board meetings. I don't want to, you know, be responsible to sort of loads of shareholders. What do, what do you think about that? If you kind of were to have to sort of, um, sort of dissect a founder's journey, what, what's, what's the difference between the person who kind of comes up with the idea and kind of navigates that and then launch, finds a way to launch it as we talked about, iterate it, and then, you know, then scaling it. Maybe there's more nodes in the scaling it. I'd love to hear your version of that kind of, that, that journey, the permutations in it. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're so, so different. I mean, a lot of times people talk about um, businesses in different stages in terms of employee numbers. So if you take a business to the first kind of like 40 staff, that's like, you know, a bit of a tipping point because when you get to like 40 staff, you're then going to start to in- um, highlight um, managers yeah and then it's all about delegation of authority and can you still control that business you know with a level of delegation and you know delegating is something that a lot of founders will struggle with because they they start a business they've nurtured it all the way through they know everyone's name they can meet everyone every day and it, it's it's easy to manage when you get past 40 that dynamic changes completely and then the business starts to change because you have like formalized functions in the business um, and everything just becomes different. Um, and that's one of the things where when people first say, I want to build a business, I've got an idea. You don't necessarily have that view of the practicalities and op- what an operational business is like as it scales and grows. And typically most businesses will kind of scale to a certain size and they just top out because they realize that either they need a significant investment to take it to the next level and they're not willing to raise that investment or they realize they're not the right person to take it to the next level. Um, and that's a natural tipping point, really. And that's why you kind of get a lot of lower level businesses sell, you know, and the bigger companies come along and gobble them up because it's, it's a natural stepping stone for them to move away. Um, but that's the knowledge that as a founder starting a business at the startup, you know, you, you don't know what you don't know. And it's trying to be realistic around, you know, what does running a 10 million pound business look like? You know, it's very different to running a 50 million pound business because, you know, Unless you've gone and been, you know, a C-suite executive somewhere, and you've worked in a larger company, and you fully appreciate the demands of what it's like to run a company like that, the amount of decisions, the amount of politics, how to kind of keep a culture intact, um, how to keep the company solvent, you know, with different capital needs, and having to keep the company, you know, inventing itself to stay relevant in the market. These are all things you don't know at the start of a journey. Um, so I think to your point about educating around what different stages of companies look like, um, what happens each different evolution of the company, um, and when actually might be the right point for you to jump off. They're really important education factors. Yeah. Yeah. Again, we could just have a whole episode talking about that. But um, <laughs> I'm going to jump to the switch table and take three or four slides because I think, as I said, there's just loads that's relevant. Um, and just to sort of affirm to anyone listening, the switch table, there'll be a link in the notes, was from series one to three of the podcast, podcast, we kind of synthesized um, key shifts in early stage venture that help further align exceptional founders and investors. Exactly what we've been talking about today. So I could probably talk about all nine uh, with Jim, but I won't. I'll, I'll pick three or four. I'm going to build on the, where we just were. Um, one of the one of one of the, uh, the shifts is that evaluating subsurface founder cues is key. So. What what this insight is about is, and it came up from when, particularly when we were talking to in, investors, is that, and it does kind of build on our our, our no code, low code part of the conversation, um, and what we were just talking about in terms of kind of founders at different stages. They're saying, you know, that when you have uh, 
everybody always says it's always about the founder, it's always about the founder, it's always about the founder. Uh, but but what do you do when you know it is a no code logo solution and there isn't much more to go for uh, go on to evaluate that founder uh, for? Then the investors of well, the phrase that came up that was kind of the subsurface founder cues that you are, you are evaluating founders on different things. So one thing that came up is um, turning up on time. You know, turning up on time, even like in presentation things like that. That is a, a subsurface cue that is still important. Another one is. Uh, ability to communicate cleanly, because if uh, if you can't do that, you're not going to be able to attract the team that you need. So, so, so it's not just cleanly, but have charisma. You have to be like, you know, the, the world's most extroverted, outgoing person. But there has to be sort of some charisma and attraction in how you communicate. Otherwise, good people are not going to work for you. The other one is uh, uh, another subsurface cue is um, being confident enough to in, ask the investor things and be prepared, you know, done your prep, um, that, you, that you're asking those investor questions themselves that are relevant. So these are all things that um, founders can do. Development of thought leadership is another one, like that founders can do with very little cost, but actually these are the things that investors are reading and valuing. So I'd love to get your view on that and other subsurface cues that may come to mind that maybe you teach um, in the, in the programme. Yeah, it's. Um, I think you can often see very quickly with certain founders, they just get it. And kind of what I mean by that is that you can ask them pretty much any question. And they're, as you mentioned, they can articulate a response very clearly. Um, they've always got rationale as to why they provide the answer back. Um, you know, when you go through the investment process, investors are going to challenge you and ask you tough questions. And when you watch a founder respond to that, it's interesting to see, you know, do they get defensive um, or are they able to kind of keep their composure and provide a real clear logic and rationale as to why they, you know, think something different? You know, can they back that up with evidence in the market? You know, you touched on thought leadership, you know, what's their belief on that and, and why do they think that's the case? Um, and why do they think that, you know, their solution will be different to the others um, because you know, when you're at the very early stage, you kind of turn up with a, you know, a, a big, bold idea. You can take on the whole market and win. Um, and obviously, there's all these incumbent players already there doing something really good. So why should you be different? Um, so you have to be able to really kind of clearly differentiate yourself between the competition and explain you know, why you will win business off them or why you will win uh, you know, clear market share where others can't. And and then start to justify, you know, your commercial model in more detail. So founders that can talk about the value they, their service provides, the price they charge for it, and the, the cost it takes to deliver it or produce. When they can articulate those three things, you can see they understand the, the business model and the commercial model. And that's what kind of gets you excited because you can understand then that they can, they can spot an opportunity and they know how to create a business rather than just saying, I've got a solution to a problem and isn't it fantastic? Um, those are those kind of sub cues for me personally that you can start to identify founders that you, you can see will be able to navigate that journey. Um, and, they, and they can just, they seem to have the ability to think outside of the box a little bit. Um, you know, they won't get stumbled upon if there's a, a blocker. They'll always find two or three solutions to a problem. And having that, it's kind of what I call agility of thought. Um, when you can kind of just say on the spot, they're able to respond to things, you know, quickly, confidently, um, and, and concisely, uh, as you mentioned earlier. What, what do you think about the one about not being scared to be, you know, 
one own and understand your value and 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 be able to ask investors intelligent questions like it seems to be a key feature of really good founders that they 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 can hold their position without being arrogant and yep. they understand that the investor's not doing them a favor you know yep. it should it's actually if they, if they you know it's a meeting of minds and actually you know you're allowed to do that you can come into that conversation with that position do, do you agree with that Absolutely. I mean, you have to be able to kind of uh, justify your stance. And and what's always interesting is a lot of investors have already got a really good knowledge of your market um, in a lot of circumstances, which people don't always expect. So it can be a bit of a shock sometimes when people actually challenge, you know, some of the stats or assumptions that you make. Um, So you have to be able to kind of do that with confidence. Um, And I think the other thing around that, though, is that when you're talking to investors, you're looking to see what value they bring. It's not just a one-way transaction. It's not just receiving cash. Um, One of the big things that we teach is that when you go to a fundraise, you're looking to kind of create 10 times the value than just the cash. And you're looking for, you know, one of your expressions is investor, um, founder fit. So you want an investor that can bring significant value post your round. Because when you kind of have the, the capital you need and you get the value, then that's what creates real velocity post round. Because if an investor can suddenly open up, you know, some doors, um, that's obviously, a, you know, an easy analogy, but that's what makes the difference. Um, you know, when you go out to your fundraise on a pitch deck, don't just say you need money, say that we're looking for two or three strategic advisors that can slot these roles in, or we're looking for an angel that can help us get through this phase, or, you know, have you done this before and how can you help us navigate it? These are the things that make a big difference, and these are the things that won't that will stop momentum from slowing down. They'll actually accelerate it. So if you're, you know, don't be afraid to interview the investor. Um, and I think they kind of quite like, you know, a bit of a, a jewel sometimes to kind of like just just test that um, because you've, you've got to get value along the way. You know, once they're on your cap table, they're not going to come off it. So it's got to work for the duration from a, an investor founder fit completely. I would just add to that, um, I, know, I won't say the name, I know someone who um, got quite far down the line, a recent raise with an investor, and then he simply started asking them some proper questions, and that investor got offended that that founder would ask them those questions, which was an immediate signal that he just dodged a bullet. You know, yep. again, having the wrong person, people don't talk about that a lot, having the wrong people in your cap table and advisors is like almost worse than no money probably is worse than no money because you are that then you are waking up every day and not knowing where you are and um people haven't got your back and let's let's just move on to slide uh three jim if you go to that um Mm -hmm. this is a point about that it's another kind of shift i think is uh, along with the others that we've discussed i think is super exciting i'd love to get your view on it and that's this idea that syndicate founder and solo driven capital is gaining traction so the idea that through platforms like odin um the propeller is partnering with black box um but there's also Verban, angel list um but also you know exited founders and the notion of a solo capitalist someone who's managing a huge amount of money themselves are starting to have these founder tech tools like an odin where they can you know invest very quickly as a syndicate be one line item on the cap table um and that that is a is again a real shift and it enables people enables investors and capital to back uh, founders early 
in it, it's not on the switch deck but it, it has come up since then and this idea of like a scalable niches so finding founders that aren't in these obvious sort of horizontal b2b e-commerce uh, plays actually deeply in scalable niches niches that are vertical down that they have this very high founder market fit around they really understand the problem you can they put demonstrable understanding of that an unfair advantage and actually that's where and they can unlock new value in markets and actually this type of capital is better suited to find um those kinds of panels. I think there is a parallel going forward all the way back to that start of that conversation, like all those like those microbreweries that were, you know, getting started in their garages. <laughs> uh, I think there is this kind of like capital's got to find these opportunities when they're deeper down when they're earlier. And this idea of a scalable niche is interesting. But the idea that there are now people who can make decisions and, and to what you just talked about, Jim, you know, add value in a real, real tangible way, not just from a capital perspective, where they can say, look, you don't need any more money. I can back you. But also, I've sat there as a founder, and also I have this domain expertise. Let's get going. You know, let's let's do this deal really quickly. Let's use an instrument like a Seedfast uh, or, or a Syndicate and, and get cracking. I think that is another massive part of the jigsaw that's changing the, the landscape. But I'd love to love to know if you cover that, and again, what you think about that. Yeah, I think it's the the, the core goal for us is going to be to get, get founders funded faster, um, and obviously that's one of the the key things here, really. Um, we have so much data at our fingertips now. Um, we simply have to use it, um, not just to kind of obviously we need to remove bias from decision making. That's you know yeah. one of the underlying things we have to do as a uh, overall. Um, but then in terms of actually matching you know skills and deals with the right investors, we need to do more of it. Um, and it's something I've, I've been following for quite a while. Um, I actually made an investment into a, a platform uh, recently that does smart data matching. So they kind of invest, uh, they smart match 300 different um, venture companies and CVCs with uh, with the right startups. So they use like, their AI algorithm um, to make deal flow happen much quicker. Um, and I think this is, yeah, you know, it's a key step going forward. Um, that that company's called Kaiku. Um, there's another company called Shipshape. Um, yeah. They're uh, the uh, venture capital search engine. Yeah. You know, where they kind of just go and find which of the VC uh, employees that actually work in specific sectors. So you can go to those people first and actually go through the front door of the VC. Um, it's just, you know, it's removing the barriers, removing the friction, getting people to where they need to be faster, but to, you know, a much more specific niche. Um, and, and I think they're going to change the game yeah that they will enable rapid deal flow you know as, as you mentioned in terms yeah. of um yeah the things like seed fast and stuff they're all things that remove friction from the process yeah um, and and that's really important for you know for a, a high growth business as we said momentum is all about you know not slowing down removing friction getting people connected to funding faster um and i think we're a really exciting crossroads as you say no, I, I i totally agree i i think I think when you start to, if there's more more people able to act in that way and from a capital point of view, and there's more tools, more founder tech. Um, I was wary when I was sort of, I spoke to like Anthony Rose at Seed Legals, he's one of our partners now, and I was like, do you think what you're doing is founder tech, you know, with Seed Fast? Because I do, even though it's a legal instrument. And he was like, yeah, I do. You know, it's anything that creates fluidity, more efficiency, to your point, you know, gets rid of asymmetry and bias. These all seem to be the common points of, of, of this conversation and everybody who's switched on is welcoming these things um, yeah. and everybody who likes that bias and that asymmetry 
Um, I went to an event recently and you can kind of see, you, you, I'm not going to say at all who they are, but you know, there is this kind of crop of investors, angels that like to float about, may, you know, there may be made one investment of three, four, five thousand pounds, you know, and, and then they kind of, they just like deal flow and they like being in that, in that game. And those people don't like this at all um because it sort of levels all that out you know it kind of gets rid of all of that it, it automates all of the all of the inefficiencies it's sort of much more fluidity whereas everybody who just wants to solve problems and back yeah. problems welcomes it and i find that shift so interesting and i think it's i think within two three years i really think like all that we're all doing is pushing on an open door i think i think you could see the transformation of the ecosystem within two two to three years easily and where what we what we're talking about um, it's just self-evident. I guess this is sort of maybe the last time we talk about it's like like where venture is at a crossroads, where that that future is imaginable because of the conversation you know you and I um, are able to have. Do, do you do, do you see the? I mean, I'm imagining otherwise you wouldn't be doing what you're doing. <laughs> but I'm, but do you see the future? Like it's not very far away, right? That 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 new ecosystem, that new future. Uh, you know, we're in it now. You know, it's kind of we're not going to escape it, and I think it's it's incredible. Um, I always look for new solutions every day, just to kind of uh, give myself a bit of a kick, really, to kind of just keep seeing how fast things are moving. Um, and you know, you look at some of the um, the, the micro SaaS uh, platforms where you can, you know, you can flip a company, you know, that you kind of started over the weekend. You might be able to kind of get it to three or four k MRR. Um, over three or four months and people can sell that really quickly yeah um you know and there's there's new markets being created to you know to flip businesses really quickly um and it's all fantastic innovation because it's kind of just it's just what keeps things moving quicker um it removes barriers it removes friction it drives innovation um and it's, it's just an exciting time to kind of start to see how it evolves and i think the the connectivity of data is going to start to drive that even more i think there'll be much more data-driven decision-making, um, you know, we should be able to kind of have access to dashboards of data. And, you know, if people can currently see that there's a, a big uptake in a, in a company's uh, revenue overnight because they've kind of run a marketing campaign, for example, and it's got success and it's got a rational uh, payback to it, then why not draw down money quickly to invest in it and kind of, you know, capitalise at the back of that? Why should you have to go for a, a long and drawn out yep. £200,000 round? Um, you know, the... The way the market's moving, I think, on some of the um, like the revenue lending for like SaaS businesses, where yeah, you, know, you can kind of access finance now for you can pre-sell contracts in advance. Um, that's yeah. really exciting. Uh, the stuff and Cap are doing, you know. I've again, we've talked to them. Yeah, I was just literally about to mention them. Yeah, I think that's amazing what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, and it, it all adds, you know, it all adds up, and it all starts to kind of just make brings down barriers, as I say, removes friction, lets businesses be much more nimble. Um, that can make you know, quicker decisions and stuff. And that's what it's about as a startup. You know, you have to be dynamic and nimble. Yeah. You have to jump on opportunities when you can. Um, and But to do that, you have to have access to finance. If you can't do that, then everything slows down. So I was going to ask you the last question, but you kind of answered it before before we kind of give you the mic to close. But what's your favourite bit of founder tech? You basically described about seven pieces there. But but I mean, have you got anything else? Else those those are totally sufficient. Um, and and I, and I agree with everything you just said. Like so, um, is there anything else that comes to mind? Like that's that was really cool. Yeah, I'm a big fan of what Circus doing at um, Pitch Space as well with the automated pitch builder. Um, really passionate guy. Kind of worked in the uh, accelerator space understands founders pains understands now how to kind of create a nice short sharp concise pitch deck um at a really affordable price um so i'm a big fan of what they're doing as well great okay well 
to close, always hand the, hand the mic back. Um, the, the, the floor is yours for any kind of shout out. Um, to, I, I, I'm, I'm assuming it's a funding hero. Like, who are you looking to talk to? How should they get in contact with you? We'll put it all in the show notes. The, the floor is yours, Jim. Thank you very much. So, I mean, it's been um, quite a busy kind of last seven or eight months for us, really, since we launched the platform. Um, so, very shortly launching a book um, by the end of March. Uh, so, look out for that. Um, the platform is being relaunched by the end of February as well uh, with a very new exciting change um, for our investment readiness platform. So can't wait for that. Um, and our uh, fundraising accelerator that's based in Birmingham, taking cohorts of uh, 20 people at a time, looking to raise it to a million pounds with pre-products and sorry, post-products and post-revenue. Um, that's launching end of March, as I say. So plenty of stuff going on. Um, can't wait to kind of uh, help some more founders get funded um, and just loving watching this space evolve. That's a great, great way to wrap up. Um, wish you every success with the with this quarter, basically. Um, all, all sounds great. Um, well, th- thanks so much, Jim. I, I honestly think we could could uh, you know could do a follow up. Maybe we should um, because you know, in all seriousness, every so often you know in these conversations, everyone adds something. But it's when you meet people who've kind of connected the dots of what this the purpose of this podcast is to help people hear those dots. But when you hear people. You speak to people and they've already kind of done all of that and you get and, and then you start to go actually we're not all crazy this actually is not theoretical it's happening yeah. um, and where this lands when this sort of wave continues to build and as you talked about you know when all the data starts to talk to each other and all the apis between all these platforms talk to each other that's a completely different ecosystem and yeah. one that kind of you know values all of the things that you talked about but and, and it kind of enables this whole approach that we talked about to be done really well and then elevates the really good founders, the really good investors, the really valuable problems that actually need to be solved. And and it kind of like automates all of the sort of boilerplate functions, which and I think we will look back and go, why on earth did that take three months? You know, <laughs> but when it could take literally, you know, three minutes or 30 seconds or whatever it may be. And I think that starts to be very different and there, and we start to value founders in different stages create different kinds of businesses all of that becomes a much more interesting place than you're a founder you're gonna have to kind of bet your house you're probably yeah. gonna you know make yourself unwell you're probably gonna you know unless you're a unicorn you're a failure you've got to raise four million quid and build a platform <laughs> you know like as we're talking about it just like the fact that we can put that in the past i think is hugely exciting and hugely sort of liberating Oh, massively, massively. And I kind of, I, I do a lot of work around um, lots of university accelerators as well. And you you start to see the spin outs that are coming out of there as well and the impact they can have. And the fact that we need to get those guys funded faster as well, because they're the ones that can make a real impact, you know, not just on the, the startup ecosystem, but also, you know, on the climate as well. Yeah, that, that's one of the, you know, you're the key driver to start, you know, kind of just connecting the dots quicker. Yeah, and then regional female back founders, diversity, you know, yep. um, underrepresented founders, all of that. It yep. shouldn't make that all of that should be blind because if you're the right person fixing the right problem in the right way, and it's you know that's all that matters. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. That's 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 the only thing that matters. The only thing, and then and and then you should just be able to access that ecosystem. And then, you know, then I think everyone's on a level playing field. Anyway, that maybe we have a part two of this once you've, once you've uh, launched. Uh, but, but seriously, Jim, thank, thank you very much for your time. And uh, it's been a real pleasure to have this conversation with you on the podcast. No, thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you, Dan.